0: here talking about,
1: Colonel
2: Angus. Yes, Daddy. I can't wait to meet him.
3: Oh, watch out, Melinda. Once a woman is introduced to Colonel Angus, she'll settle for nothing less.
2: Daddy, they say all the women folk love Colonel Angus. Mm. I myself never much cared for Colonel Angus. He
1: rubs me the wrong way. Not sure why. Can't put my finger on it. Hi.
3: From New York, it's Saturday night. It's
1: Saturday night. It's
3: Saturday night. Live from New York. Live from New York. It's,
0: it's New York. Saturday night. Live from New York. New York. It's Saturday night. night. Live from New York. Live from New York. Saturday night. It's Saturday night. Live from New York. It's Saturday night. It's Saturday night. Live from New York. It's
1: Saturday night.
4: 2015 marks the 40-year anniversary of NBC TV's venerable late-night staple, Saturday Night Live. That's SNL, to those who know her best. Originally created and developed by producer Lauren Michaels and former NBC Sports chairman Dick Ebersol, as filler when talk show legend Johnny Carson yanked his best-of compilation shows from the network's weekend schedule... It quickly became not only the touchstone of a new brand of socio-politically aware American comedy, but the yardstick upon which the next four decades of humor in the stand-up, television, and filmic worlds would be measured.
5: While not the first network comedy machine for that, take a look at Rowan Martin's Laugh-In, or the BBC's earlier The Goon Show, which introduced the legendary Peter Sellers, who then went on to influence Bonnie Python and the Firesign Theater. SNL would become one of the longest-running and, as far as nuts-and-bolts media success goes, most profitable still-in-production series in U.S. television history. It was born during the topsy-turvy era of the 70s, when the cinema of independent rebels such as John Cassavetes, Arthur Penn, Fonda, Hopper, Martin Scorsese were making inroads into the mainstream. SNL would similarly galvanize the, at times, politically dangerous comedic fringe into a potent 90-minute-per-week packet, and mainline it into middle American pop culture.
6: In the 2008 film The Dark Knight, Harvey Dent offers the opinion that you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And you simply can't be around as long as Saturday Night Live without becoming both, back and forth, and again over the years. To be around that long as a franchise, it has to change with the times. And the ever-changing, ever-evolving SNL has now been around long enough to also emerge as a four-decade Greek chorus commentary on the public's ever-changing taste, or some would say lack thereof, on comedy and popular culture in general.
5: Using SNL as a sliding scale of, here's that phrase one more time, ever-changing public taste, tonight we're zooming in on a handful of quintessential comedic franchises we feel best represents the vibe of their respective decades, from the taboo-breaking blazing saddles to DV's trend-setting in-loving color to the voice of the present-day Judd Apatow comedy machine evidenced in films such as The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Trainwreck. Tonight
4: we're also proud. Nah, we're freaking blown away. ...by the fact that the movie-sneaks, formerly two-headed beast of Craig and Jim, uh, now becomes, for a while at least, the three-headed, fire-breathing, film-loving monster of Craig, Jim, and actor, writer, director, Dean Cameron. Welcome aboard, dude. woo Perhaps remembered by many for a string of popular 80s cinema cult hits, such as the comedy Summer School and Ski School, and the still-terrifying Bad Dreams, Dean today is a writer and director who somehow not only finds the time to appear in everything from current series such as Southland, Glee, and Shameless, and films like the recent Straight Out of Compton, but has now also managed to set aside a little time to indulge his love of film with ours. And we can't say thank you enough. I'm Craig Jameson.
5: I'm Dean Cameron.
4: And I'm Jim Delaney. And welcome to The Movie Sneak and our episode Funny on the Fringe with Dean Cameron. 40 years of comedy from SNL to Judd Apatow. All in all, a pretty loaded and fairly heady assemblage of topics. Not heady, it's headly. Oh, sorry. Shh.
2: Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, I mean, I'm just not sure. Why can't you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a guess for another two hours? No, 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 I mean we can't land for another two hours. Fog has closed down everything this side of the mountains. We've got to get through to Chicago. What is it, Doctor? What's going on? I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything like this since you need a riot concert.
4: Greetings all, and welcome to the newest installment of the all-new The Movie Sneak Podcast. Starting with this episode, we're inaugurating our long-in-development variety show format, wherein we hope to break from the status quo confines of your average couple-of-talking-heads structure— and into something a little more energetic and all-points-encompassing, if you will. Sandwiched in the Center of Things, of course, is a pretty damn fascinating retrospective of comedy over the last four decades, with our, well, more than a guest, actor, writer, director, Dean Cameron whose voice in the opening intro, those with a fondness for 80s cinema as well as present-day television, surely recognize from starring roles in popular cult films such as Summer School, Ski School, Men at Work, and Sleep With Me, as well as more current series, the likes of Glee, Southland, American Horror Story, and the recent theatrical hit Straight Outta
6: Compton. And as if that weren't enough, we've got our first musical guest, international jazz and classical composer and performer Lucian Nagy, hailing from Romania. Yes, you heard me right, Romania. Lucian, in recent years, has been making an impression on the global scene with his brand of unique artistry, which includes not only straight-ahead bebop, acid, pop, and easy-listening jazz, but also as a producer and a multi-instrumental virtuoso of the sax, the flute, Turkish ney, the Georgian-Armenian Duduk The Bulgarian Kovil, Chinese Shao African Djembe And more Whoa We've got a couple of Lucian's works on tap Along with a mini artist bio interview And we introduce the up-and-coming podcast troupe We Found Microphones Who in coming episodes of the Movie Sneak Will contribute reviews and opinions On some of the latest TV series and games They kicking things off With a look at season 2 of FX's anthology adaptation Of the Coen Brothers Fargo So without further ado, let's get this bad boy
4: in gear.
2: Hello and welcome to We Found Microphones. My name is Jack McCafferty. Hi, I'm Kevin Giles. And I'm Casey Hayes. Uh, We have a fourth member, Jake Westfall, but he is not with us today. And we're here to give you the skinny down low and all the info. All the didn't know everything we know about Fargo.
7: I had a case once.
8: Back in 79. I'd tell you the details, but it sounds like I made them up. Madness, really. Bodies? Yes, sir. One after another. Probably If you stacked them high, could have climbed to the second floor. I'd call it animal. Except animals only kill for food. This
6: was Sioux Falls.
2: Fargo is a show on FX. It is an anthology series, so we're going to be talking about season two. If you haven't seen season one, you can choose either one to start off with. It doesn't matter. The story doesn't continue.
9: Yeah, I mean, I chose season two. Apparently, it's better. I chose season one. Season two probably is better, but season one is amazing too. I would <laughs> say to watch that also. Uh,
2: yes, but season two. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with the movie Fargo, which the series is based on, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a very hypergraphic, violent film but that's just quirky as it's got quirky going out the wazoo. So funny. It's really it's so funny. funny.
3: It's it's a classic Cohen Brothers movie.
9: Yeah. Classic. No, it's like funny only in a way that only the Coens can be. <laughs> and I don't know how Noah Hawley's recaptured that with the show, but it's amazing. He's the creator, uh, right? Noah. He's Hall. the creator of the show and uh the writer. And he yeah, I don't, I was like really skeptical going into it. I knew it had like the Cohen seal of approval, but yeah, it's they're executive amazing. producers, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just okay. amazing that he's been able to do that.
2: And this show, actually, I think, feels more like a movie than it does a show. Like, oh, I definitely. watch an episode and I go, I sit down and like, mm-hmm. I don't like do anything else. I'm there to watch the, the the show. Yeah, it it has my full attention the entire time.
3: Mm-hmm. It's awesome because it feels it feels like just an extension of the Fargo film. Like, it's got the mm-hmm. same feel. Like, it's got that, like you said, it's got that Coen Brothers, like, seal of approval. Like, it, their influence is felt on that show. It feels as methodical and as decisive as any of their films do. Like, mm-hmm. it feels just like that. And I'm, that's what's really amazing. It's Noah Hawley that's the creator. And he, he's, I thought, it's incredible how he's been able to catch that. I'm sure yeah. the Coen Brothers being executive producers have helped with that. But, like... Just being able to lead, run that show and make it feel just like the films is like incredible in its own right. So oh,
2: Another thing I think that helps that with that is uh, the fact that they aren't afraid to experiment with the film media. Mm-hmm. It's not like, no, For instance, not this all. season they're doing a lot of split screen to see juxtapositions yeah. of yeah. characters. I was really
9: skeptical about that at first. Like, I, I wasn't sure about it either. The first time I saw it I was like, oh, I don't know about this. But mm-hmm. then I think it was like... The second episode, there's a husband and wife and (laughs) just going about their days in different ways. Like, I don't want (laughs) to spoil anything, but it just worked so well. It was perfect.
2: Not to mention the cast is amazing just uh, everyone is perfectly cast Mm -hmm. and they do what they do so well so well in fact that Casey and I one of our favorite actors is actually in the show we're not going to say who but they died the first episode and we were (laughs) so upset
9: (laughs) I was like the person I was looking forward to seeing and I was so sad but then I immediately got over it
2: because then you find other characters (laughs) that really yeah like
9: it's like oh my god that guy from burn notice is killing it
3: you know it's really crazy Like, I don't even recognize these actors. Like, these actors that I've seen on other shows, like, oh, that's that. That's who that Mm -hmm. is. I know that face anywhere. But then I I watch the show, and I'm just like, wait, is that him? I'm not totally sure, because I I really just want to give a shout-out to the makeup team. Like, they make these guys look like they're actually living in that decade. It takes place in 79, I believe it is. I think it's 79, 1980, something like that. Minnesota. 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 And they, they look like they're living in that age. They don't look like the actors placed, like, you know, the actors playing a... A role. They look like they've been placed in that time period because they have the Definitely. styles, they have the facial hair that's all perfect. Like, mm-hmm. everything just is perfect and, like, every detail is fantastic mm-hmm. to the point where I'm like, I'm not sure if that's that actor because they look completely different than anything else I've seen them in.
9: What I think is really amazing is that, like, how versatile these actors are. Like, mm-hmm. it shows, like, what they can do with good writing. Like, they're, like dramatic actors that are very funny and then there's like very funny actors like Jean Smart is usually um, a comedic actress and she's just like so terrifying in this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I feel it's, like a lot
2: of characters do that. There's one character um, uh, what's his name? Mikey, Mikey? M- Mike McGillan. Yeah. Who is oh not simultaneously the most uh, threatening character and yet mm-hmm. you want to hang out with him so much. Yeah. <laughs> Who's he played by? Let's, let's shout is, out that actor.
9: Uh, Bokeem Bo- Woodbine mm. is just um, he's amazing, yes yeah. like mm-hmm. it, yeah. It's ridiculous how good he is.
2: So I think our uh, final review. I say go watch it.
9: Personally. I say that it's. Pro- I think it's the best show on TV. <laughs> honestly, I love it so much. <laughs> in
2: a world of a lot of shows, you get to choose to binge binge watch this one, mm-hmm. or watch it FX Monday nights. Oh yes, yes.
9: All right, definitely.
2: That's been uh, we found microphones in our TV show review.
4: Thanks, guys, for a lot more. Check out we found microphones. On SoundCloud. Coming up next, composer, jazz artist Lucien Nagy here on the Movie Sneak. Sneak is honored to present our first musical guest, Lucian Nadi and Balkumba Tribe with Children of Zamunda. have another cut by Lucian a little later in the show, as well as a mini-interview. So, stick around.
5: There's hard evidence that implicates you in this murder, and we discovered that your wife here isn't having an affair with anyone. In fact, I'm sensing she was teaching Coach Bag how to read. I just wrote those letters to blow off steam. I didn't beat anyone to death. Look at me. I couldn't stand a chance against Muscle's McHandsome face. <laughs> no. I'm sorry I doubted you, baby can't seem to get out of my own way it's probably because you have webbed feet zach sure some men find a second wind in middle life and get themselves in any sort of physical shape but you didn't and that's okay because i love you cable god that's
3: backhand
1: isn't
5: it not on the lips
4: (laughs) that's dean cameron as zach in a 2014 episode of USA TV's comedy detective series, Psych, entitled A Nightmare on Stage Street. Dean, welcome to the movie, Sneakman. Hello. Now, for any uh, newbies out there who may be playing a little catch-up on their Film School 101, let's do a quick bit of backstory. Uh, Dean, if you can start with a mini-podcast version of an IMDb bio on yourself... Jim and I will then chime in on our first exposure to Dean and his films from back in our uh, movie sneaking days.
5: I'm Dean Cameron, uh, most people know me as Chainsaw from the movie Summer School, which was made probably before you were born, back in the 80s. Uh, I've been working as an actor and writer and director since then, um, recently been working with the band called Steel Panther, uh, writing music with them and directing their videos and of a pilot for a tv show for them and i'm in um recently in straight out of compton and i'm on the season opener of always sunny in philadelphia next spring and a little movie called the waiting with james conn that's it that's me i live in california i have a wife and a son and uh i live in burbank and it's awesome
4: so jim what was your first exposure to dean and his work
6: uh, sure. Well, I know, you know, I know our focus is, is, is uh, mostly, you know, the vast majority is film. And yeah, I saw summer school when I was in, in high school and loved it a lot more than I expected to. Um, uh, you know, I thought it'd be a, a fun afternoon. I didn't expect it to be as, as solid an ensemble movie as it was. But really, uh, my, my earliest awareness and later even more fun awareness of Dean was, was TV work. Uh, probably the first I saw was, was as Jeff Spicoli in the Fast Times show. Um, wow! right. And if yeah. if we're doing and if we're doing I mean, if we're talking about, you know, comedy and, and generational changing I mean, that's an iconic character that, that Yeah, big right. Big. I mean, there was no there's no Wayne's world without Jeff Spicoli. There's no Bill and Ted's excellent adventure without Jess Piccoli. And, you know, sure, Sean Penn is the voice that everybody hears first, but I mean for anybody who was actually alive at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dean as much as, as Sean, you know, I mean, the, the, this, this character was continued, and, and continued very well by Dean, and that's when, that's the first time, and when I saw Summer School, in his first scene, in Dean, in your first scene, I was I saying, was I know this guy, I know this guy, and then it clicked and I was like, oh, I love him, he's fucking awesome, and I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. Um, that's cool. And then, kind of jump way ahead, uh, the, the talent agency that, that I used to show lunch movies in, um, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was one of our clients who created Mr. Sterling. Oh, and oh, wow. and i i really love that show too and i that's it's it's one that i was always disappointed that it didn't last you know as long as i remember you know uh the people who didn't like it it was a every show that would come on like every september our whole job would turn into you know, the Coke versus Pepsi challenge, the Michael Jackson versus Prince challenge, people would argue over which shows should last and which ones won't. And the detractors referred to Mr. Sterling as West Wing-like. Exactly. And, and and those of us who supported it said, no, there's something different going on here. And they have, they, they, there's, this is worth your time. And, um and then right as we started to win people's attention, it, it, it ceased to be, but I, I still I still love that show.
5: Went the way of the dodo, yeah, but it was a hell of a show, yeah. doesn't
6: you? Know, I mean, there's some great shows that only lasted one season, and that's that's one of them. So, uh, so yeah, my two my two favorite yeah. connections, to you were actually are actually from TV, even though I'm a movie nerd. So, yeah, yeah, tell me about it.
4: Well, my uh, introduction to Dean um, kind of came uh, not with the comedies, actually, with the film uh, Bad Dreams.
7: As night falls, a new day begins. A day
6: of unity.
7: Sometimes a single moment of madness... Our love will
1: never die.
7: ...can last a lifetime. Come to me, Cynthia. You belong with us forever.
10: She was in a coma for over 13 years. Everyone she knew was killed in the fire.
7: And sometimes your worst nightmares begin the moment you wake up.
1: He's in there. He's alive.
7: Who's alive? I'm waiting, Cynthia. (gasps) Can you survive bad dreams? Take a stab at it.
4: Uh, Bad Dreams actually opened at around a time. Um, Gail Ann Hurd, who, you know, a lot of people realize, uh, produced a number of films with James Cameron, uh, Terminator, Terminator 2, Aliens, The Abyss. And um, at the time, she started a company called No Frills, and they did three films. The first was Bad Dreams. The second was Tremors, which is probably best known to most people. The third was a film called The Water Dance with Eric Stoltz and uh, Helen Hunt and, and Bill Forsyth and uh, William Forsyth, sorry, the director and uh, Wesley Snipes and uh, Bad Dream the whole idea was to make small budget films that would allow the um, creators to have uh, control over those films around this time the independent movement was starting to have an influence on the major studios and even at Universal filmmakers like Wes Craven and, 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 and John Carpenter got to do smaller scale films like Prince of Darkness Serpent and Rainbow they lived, the people under the stairs, where they actually were able to exercise creative control if they could bring these films in for a certain amount of money, uh, within a certain amount of time. And it was almost like the old days of, um, the, uh, Roger Corman era. And, um, so for me, who was somebody who was going right into film and, uh, wanting to learn more about that career, and who had a fond memory of all those Corman-esque and 70s exploitation, quote-unquote, driving kind of movies. Um, The whole no-frills uh, uh, banner was... was I was this waiting with bated breath. So when I saw Dead... Uh, I'm sorry, Bad Dreams, I was blown away. And I know some people were a little blindsided by the film because it kind of starts as a supernatural thriller, and then by the time you get to the end, it's a little more of a psychological thriller. But I, I just dug the film big time. And there was this... uh the crazy dude, you know, <laughs> uh, who happened to be Dean. And he was like, who, who, who the hell is this guy? He just blew me away. And then, uh, I kind of backtracked a little later and then I saw summer school. Uh, and then a little later, of course, I saw ski school and, um, and i and i guess most prominently um uh uh sleep with me you know where you're the um the 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 poker dealer you know and, and in some respects kind of the greek chorus for a while in the film making comment on certain things and so i was like yeah th- this guy is pretty cool it's kind of interesting so many years later when bob introduced us i was like yeah uh, it'll definitely be um um a really really great uh, kind of going back and going forward at the same time to get to know this guy so that's how i came to know Dean Cameron.
3: Having received all your letters over the years, and, 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 and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles to, to be here, I'd just like to say get a life, will you people? Uh, I mean, I, I mean for, for crying out loud, it's it's just a TV show. I mean, look at you, look at the way you're dressed. Uh, you're, 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 You've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. I I mean, how old are you people? You. You you must be almost 30. Have you you ever kissed a girl? I I didn't think so. So, move out of your parents' basement. And get your own apartments and and grow the hell up. I mean, it's just a TV show, damn
2: it. It's just a TV show. Are are you saying, then, that we should pay more attention to the movies?
4: (laughs) The famous or infamous William Shatner Trekkies Get a Life skit from a December 1986 broadcast of Saturday Night Live. SNL debuted in October 1975... And right from the get-go, deliberately staked its claim as, alongside All in the Family, which premiered four years earlier, the hot-button show of the decade. Its very first guest host was the often incendiary George Carlin. Then two months later, Lauren and the Gang went up the ante with the always incendiary Richard Pryor. In fact, NBC was so concerned Pryor might let slip something on live TV, which could get them into trouble with the FCC. ...that for the first time, Saturday Night Live wasn't exactly live... ...but rather on a five-second time delay... ...with personnel at the ready, if necessary... ...to bleep out any prior verbal indiscretions. The time delay would be used only twice more on SNL over the next 40 years... ...with Sam Kinnison in 1986 and with Andrew Dice Clay in 1990. Now, the night prior was on, the delay wasn't necessary... But it did make TV history. So guys, SNL debuts in 1975, and for better or for worse, we're all old enough to remember the show during its, let's say, first 10 years. So what was your first exposure to Saturday
5: Night Live? I grew up in Oklahoma, and there were television affiliates, right? So the NBC affiliate in Oklahoma City wouldn't show Saturday Night Live the first season. So I heard about this show called Saturday Night Live and when I would visit my cousins in Lawton, Oklahoma, who had a different NBC affiliate, I got to see this amazing show with the people I'd heard from the National Lampoon Records, Bill Murray and yeah, right. So I knew I knew the National Lampoon Records and like, oh yeah, this John Belushi guy, I know that name, and I got to see them on TV and that was really cool. But yeah, we didn't, I didn't get Saturday night live until I think the third season actually in Oklahoma. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Wow.
6: What, uh, what about you, Jim? Well, my, my first exposure to Saturday night live was, was, uh, from a babysitter. I had this this a uh, babysitter in, in the seventies. Her name was Diana. And I was of course in love with her cause who the hell wouldn't be in love with the cute babysitter who had Kate Jackson hair and, and uh bell bottoms and uh this is the midwest so it came on at ten thirty instead of eleven thirty, and i was like six and she was letting me step way the hell past my bedtime to watch this thing so yeah and then she kept like making like every other sketch like every commercial break she would make me promise that i wasn't going to tell my folks what i'd just seen <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh and then you know so that was and then about two years later um uh, uh was was animal house was also kind of a a, a watershed moment for me because I, I mean that was in that in that 95 minutes or whatever it was i saw more breasts than i'd seen in my entire life up to at that point and i just thought wow this is what college is this is this is the whole reason to go to college was you get to cause mayhem everywhere you go um and uh, you know i mean and there are things that you know, like I'm i'm laughing at and thinking Am I the only one? No, everybody here is laughing at this. This Isn't you know? So this is this is highbrow and lowbrow. This is like funny for adults, funny for kids. Uh, this is great. College is going to be awesome. I have to do really well in high school so I get to go do this, so, <laughs> right? So yeah, the, the, that was pretty much the within. I mean, I, I almost remember as, as being like practically the same week. But no, there was a good two or three years in between my first exposure to Life in and Animal House. But yeah, the, I, I, they're permanently linked in my head. Well, what are the things? Just ext- <clears throat> excuse me. One of the things that's extremely cool is going from medium
4: to medium, and then, you know, we're definitely uh, primarily a, a, a film show here, but it's kind of nice how you had uh, Belushi and Murray and all the National Lampoon Record guys go to Saturday Night Live to TV, and then they would make the leap to film, uh, which you can arguably say started with Animal House, you know, and which most of us kind of became familiar with from HBO, so God bless cable TV in the seventies and eighties, right?
5: Uh, speaking of HBO, uh, Animal House played on a loop. I think Animal House was the summer school of the seventies because I know that Summer School played on. Yeah, Summer School played on HBO forever, and Animal House. I know every line of that movie because it was it, that. They showed that in Taxi Driver, but uh, yeah, Animal House was just my favorite movie, and that came from Saturday Night Live and all those people and. A great thing well,
7: we're gonna die Bud. they're gonna leave us here to die take it easy charlie yeah. my
10: foot's on the rail
7: oh uh. There. take that shovel and put her to
8: some good use <laughs> send a wire to the main office and tell them what i said ow End wire main office tell them i
0: said ow gotcha
10: About to embark on a great crusade to stamp out runaway decency in the West. Now you will only be risking your lives, whilst I will be risking an almost certain Academy Award nomination for best supporting actor. Now raise your right hand for the pledge. Right. Now repeat after me. I. Aye. Aye. Your name? Your name? Schmucks. Pledge allegiance? Pledge allegiance? To Hedley Lamar?
1: To Hedley
8: Lamar? That's Hedley! Headley. Hedley!
10: And to the evil? And to the evil? For which he stands? For which he stands? Now go to
0: that voodoo that you do so well.
4: Few films, comedy or otherwise, have as long lasting a pop cultural appeal and have been as creatively influential since their initial release as Blazing Saddles. Long considered by many the movie which hilariously drove the final nails into the coffin of the Western genre, Blazing Saddles would go on to replace it with a new one, the non-sequitur, anachronistic, and very often scatological comedy. Think about it. Without the trail blazed, ha-ha, by Mel Brooks, still funny to this day, Take your pick genre cliche tossed into the comedic cuisin art, there would be no airplane, naked gun, I'm gonna get you sucker, or even The Princess Pride. A critical and box office smash for Warner Brothers, filmed for approximately two and a half million dollars, it took in 48 million during its initial run, and has to date returned over 120 million, Lathing Saddle's biggest benefactors would be three members of its creative team director Mel Brooks, and two of his co-screenwriters, Andrew Bergman and Richard Pryor. While all three had careers in comedy and film before Blazing Saddles, the global success of the 1974 Western satire would launch all of their careers into the stratosphere. Best known as a writer on Your Show of Shows, comedy partner with Carl Reiner, and creator of TV's Get Smart, along with the occasional film such as The Twelve Chairs and The Producers, Blazing Saddles would launch the Mel Brooks filmic empire, he not only following up Saddles with the equally successful genre satires Young Frankenstein and History of the World Part One, but with the founding of Brooks Films, which over the ensuing decades would produce such lauded titles as The Elephant Man, My Favorite Year, Francis, The Fly, and 84 Charing Cross Road. Prior up till then was certainly a legendary comedian, But his movie career primarily consisted of the occasional supporting role in films like Wild in the Streets, Lady Sings the Blues, and The Mac. After Saddles, he'd become a top-liner in classics such as The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, Silver Streak, Blue Collar, and Stir Crazy. And writer Andrew Bergman would go on to become, as New York Magazine called him, the unknown king of comedy penning and or directing films such as the in-laws Fletch the freshman and honeymoon in Vegas in 2004 Brooks and Bergman reflected back on blazing saddles
7: blazing saddles uh, was for me was a film that that, that truly broke ground uh, it also broke wind uh, and maybe that's why it broke ground, but there were a lot of uh, there were there were a lot of avant-garde uh, conceptions in that movie.
8: I wrote a script, first draft, 1971. That's where it began, and Warner Brothers, lo and behold, bought it, much to my amazement. Um, and they hired Alan Arkin to direct it, and James Earl Jones to play the black sheriff. And for some reason, that fell apart. So. They said how about mel brooks i said mel brooks him, yes, me he's one of my heroes
7: usually you throw out the original uh writer always you just get him off the set you get rid of him because he's trouble he's a lot of trouble i like bergman i like what he his his uh his concept was very basic his concept was play 1874 in
8: 1974. you, you make the joke with the gucci bags and and that he's hip and that's it. You just, you take it for granted. You don't, you don't examine it.
7: I wanted Richard Pryor to play the lead. But I said, wait a minute, Richard uh, he was only an nightclub comic then, nobody knew him. So I, I called Richard and I said, Richard, come write with us. He said, okay.
8: The writing process was insane.
7: It was like writing the show of shows again. It was all being in a room,
8: competing with each other. It was really hilarious between, uh, I mean, Mel and Richie. It was a really funny room.
7: Hey, boys. Look what I got here! Hey, where are the white women at? The engine that drove *Blazing Saddles* was—it was race prejudice. Without that, the movie would not have had nearly the significance, the force, the dynamism, and 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 the stakes that it, that that were contained in the film.
6: That would pretty much be my favorite comedy of the modern of the modern era. And I kind of mm-hmm. define modern versus classic era by by when we started having a rating system. Um you know, most people tend to think of old movies as being anything before they were born. Rating system was two years before me, so I kind of I'm I'm lucky that way <laughs> that there's that coincidence. Um yeah, and and Blazing Saddles is my favorite from since my lifetime. And mm-hmm. uh and I didn't even actually set out to see it on the day that we saw it. Uh my dad, my brother and I were going to see uh buck rogers <laughs> gil gerard won before it was before it was even going to be a tv show uh-huh. and uh and it was there was a line around the block and it was raining and meanwhile blazing saddles was a block away with no line it was a re-release like four or five years after it came out and uh and we went and and it killed like we I mean, you know my, i think my dad had seen it before on a business trip or something but uh, but he took my brother and me and i was i think i would have been about nine years old and um it just it just blew me away and then it it keeps blowing me away every time I see it. It, it was it was I spot something new. I learned the more I learn about film in general, the more I appreciate that movie. And it's also always been one of the classics of the lunch movie because any time I would show something a little too out there, a little too arty, or a little too violent, a little too anything that just freaked people out right. and made them stop coming, throw that in next. They all came. Back. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I, could, I It was always like the go to that I could count on to, to bring back a crowd. Um, yeah, and it's 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 also the breaking of the fourth wall for okay, spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen well, it. Well, it's been oh, yeah. in forty price, years. Yeah. If they haven't seen but it by now, then shame on them. Right. And I can't even I can't even really spoil it because basically you you can't even describe this fast enough. The breaking of the fourth wall in the end. <laughs> It has such right. a perfect rhythm that it makes me want to jump up and dance. <laughs> and and right. with Dom DeLewis, right? <laughs> Gene, right, Gene Wilder, well, not even that part, but basically just the whole, the, the entire sequence of the Chinese scene. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, let, let's go in and finish the movie. And they walk in, and Gene Wilder gets a pop. And in the, it, I probably saw the movie ten times before I noticed that. And that's when I just realized wow. that this thing is so far ahead of me, and I just need to rush to keep up every time. And yeah, that, that, that one little moment to me is kind of the quintessential. Here's why I love this. Either you get this and you know, it's amazing or you don't. In which case there's plenty of other pedestrian stuff out there for you.
5: (laughs) You know, that that Mel Brooks (laughs) taught me, you know, I growing up in, in Norman, Oklahoma, very homogenous town. We had, I, there were two black kids at my high school. One of them was retarded so, you know, I had no sort of idea about what black people were like, which not in a prejudice, just like they weren't there. You know what I mean? Right. Like when I and grew up, I also, didn't know any gay
4: people. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And there were Jews and gay was I, I sort of understood what that was. But that movie taught me because I saw it multiple times and taught me about like this, this sort of homosexual thing that was going on and. And you know, Cleavon Little was so sexy and cool and <laughs> with the Gucci saddlebags.
6: Awesome
5: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then and then and then yeah, the money and the rich stuff, it was just so informative. But with Dick and fart yeah. jokes in there just for you know, it's it's a perfect. It really comedy. is.
4: Yeah, true. I mean you yes. cannot watch a campfire scene today and not think of blazing saddles. You can't. It's, no it, it can't be done. Y-
5: you can't have any more right Blazing Saddles, I mean, Saddles yeah. yeah forever right cuz somebody's going to fart I have a I have some insider information about uh, Blazing Please. Saddles I'd like to share with you My friend Patrick Laberto who if you remember the movie Summer School he was also in Heathers he was my dead gay son in Heathers uh, he was in the movie Blazing Saddles and they cut out his scene So this is the scene they cut out Cleavon Little's riding into town on his horse and there's a bunch of kids fighting and they're beating up this kid who was my friend Patrick. And Pat, Pat was a child actor at the time, obviously. And Cleveland Little breaks up the fight. He goes, hey, kids, kids, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Pat's line was, oh, we're, we're just playing a game, sir. And Cleveland Little says, w- w- what game? We're playing Welcome the New Sheriff to Town. <laughs> so...
6: Well, you know,
5: <laughs> but they—I guess they—they they cut out that scene because they just wanted him riding right. into town, and you know everything stopped. Uh-huh. Well,
4: it's town, kind of so hard to like you know riding into town. Well, riding through the desert with the Count Basie Orchestra playing "April in Paris." It's kind of hard to you know <laughs> to right, right. top that as far as rhythm is concerned. You know, <laughs> yeah. But you know, yeah. okay. Well, for me, uh, "Blazing Saddles" to this day, um, for me, it's the quintessential '70s taboo-breaking movie because. It's kind of this microcosm, to me anyway, this microcosm of what 70s cinema was and has become. I mean, 70s cinema was all about breaking taboos. Um, it was all about, uh, well, very often taking, uh, pulpy material, be it, um, gangster movies like The Godfather, with The Godfather, and re, right, yeah, yeah, you know, and repurposing point. them yeah. to, um, to say something, well, either The Godfather or Mean Streets or, 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 something like that, or even taking the Western, uh, in, in movies like, um, uh, um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, or something like um, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, or The Love Story, The Way We Were, you know, and taking all these tried and true beat-to-death cliché genres and doing something new with them, Uh, for me, you can't watch Blazing Saddles and not get into the N-word, you know, and it's kind of funny because... I despise that word, especially when black people use it. Like, well, no, I despise that word when young black rappers use it and claim they're doing it for, you know, social political reasons. Like, no, it's for shock value and to draw attention to yourself when you're getting paid. It's not like when Lenny Bruce did his famous shtick or when Richard Pryor did it, you know, um, no, they were breaking back. They were breaking boundaries. And, um, now, ironically, they succeeded in breaking those boundaries to such a degree that it's now become commercial. It's gone from being taboo-breaking to commercial. And it's kind of interesting to see that right down to the usage of the N-word, which back then was transgressive with a purpose. Now it's become commercial. And I don't necessarily know whether it's with a purpose. And I think a lot of those taboo-breaking filmmakers who are making films around the same time as Blazing Saddles might say the same thing about you know what has happened w- what they've been doing and what they've become so to me Blazing Saddles is certainly a quintessential film from that era f- for, for those reasons
7: hey, you get back here you can
8: they say there's no way that nobody's gonna leave this town hell I was born here and I was raised here and that's coming I'm gonna die here and his old, and him bushwhacking,
7: porn-sporting, crocker-crocker is gonna roll away with cutter. Now, who can argue with that? Well, look, Hoss. You start
6: running a respectable business, and I won't have to come in here and hassle you every night. You know what I mean? And I want the rest of you cowboys to know something. There's a new sheriff
3: in town, and his name is Reggie Hammond.
5: Uh, you in this class too?
9: Mm-mm. I'm teaching it. No. No
5: way. Put it all the time. Put it all the time. My good lucks to put
0: it all, right. all, all right. the time. All right,
9: Have a seat. See
7: who the lucky
5: winners are. Francis Grim. Oh, uh, don't recall me that. The name is Chainsaw. As in Black and Decker. As in Texas Massacre. Oh. Yeah, that's in here. It's in there?
8: They got files.
5: Ham like House. House?
4: Says here you lack concentration. Bam. Hmm. By the 1980s, the 1970s era excesses of the taboo-breaking baby boomers gave way to a desire for a quieter, more stable, and what would have been considered sellout in the days of their youth, middle American family existence. During this era, even Richard Pryor was star in Superman three. Conservative was retro-popular, as evidenced in the election of leaders such as Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, family values was the catchphrase, and Huey Lewis's hip-to-be-square could have been the musical anthem for an entire generation whom one comedian satirized as those who in the 1960s and 70s had every chemical substance known to man, but now in the 80s won't even eat jelly with preservatives in it. Popular with this turnaround generation were family centric TV series such as The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, and Different Strokes. But just as there was a socio political pushback against what many considered the empty promises of the Reagan Thatcher era, so was there a creative pushback against the straight and narrow, family centric entertainment wave. Oddly and ironically, This shove evidenced itself in not a new crop of anti-family shows and films, but rather with a string of hits which might better fall under the term surrogate family hits, wherein a group of outsiders, a land of misfit toys as it were, whom would never be accepted by the Cosby Show Growing Pains crowd, came together and dirty dozen-like formed families of their own. The surrogate families of shows such as Cheers, Night Court, Moonlighting, and even Magnum P.I. and the A-Team would have big-screen counterparts in films such as The Breakfast Club, Revenge of the Nerds, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Goonies, Porky's, and even Ghostbusters and 48 Hours. One of the most underrated and, as Jim mentioned earlier, solid ensemble pieces of the era was 1987's Summer School. According to Woody Allen those who can't do, teach, and those who can't teach, teach Jim, which, on the surface, is thematically summer school's plot, wherein a narrow do well so-called physical education teacher, played by future NCIS star Mark Harmon, is blackmailed into taking over a summer school class populated by a group of young, equally non-motivated, but charmingly hilarious, non-achievers, who later prove there's more to them than at first meets the eye. The cast would also include Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan's Kirstie Alley and our very own Dean Cameron. And just as on-screen, Summer School played out its more-than-meets-the-eye scenario, so too was there much more going on behind the creative scene, with a group of old pros themselves slightly shoving back at the era's conventional concept of family. Directed by Mel Brooks' former comedic partner in crime and creator of The Dick Van Dyke Show, Carl Reiner, Summer School was scripted by Jeff Franklin, best known as the creative papa of TV's Full House, then later Hanging with Mr. Cooper. And its slyly neoclassical with a wink score was one of the earliest by Oingo Boingo frontman, making the transition to film composer, Danny Elfman. In some respects, the quintessential 80s film to me is taps. You know, with, cause you had all those guys... Timothy Hutton and Tom Cruise and Sean Penn, who were like around the same age that I was, you know, around the same time. And they were kind of standing up for themselves together against this, the man, the establishment, if you will. And movies like Summer School were sort of the comedic version of that. The Dean Cameron persona, I hope you guys get it. For some reason, the Dean Cameron persona characters reminded me a little more of Bugs Bunny and Axel Foley.
5: <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny you say that because ski school, I said I'm playing Bugs Bunny.
4: Oh, there you go. Cool.
5: Yeah, you I'm know, just, I'm just based based the character on Bugs, but right down to the very end where I kiss the bad guy on the <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> there you go. Bugs. I mean, the only Bugs thing Bunny you
4: don't do is the big You know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And because Bugs Bunny and actual Foley character, they're intelligent. They're usually right. the smartest people in the room. You know. And everyone else is struggling to keep up with them, but they think they're sharper than those guys because they're just part of the status quo, part of the status quo machine. So that's what I always dug about the, uh, the Dean Cameron persona. And then, of course, you get into something like ski school, which technically is early 90s. The 90s. You know, yeah. but – What I kind of like about the 80s films, the earlier ones were almost like what I call rubber band snapback films. I think because everything was so new, some of them may have gone a little over the top. So you had Porky's and stuff like that where it's like, ooh, boobs. You know, let's (laughs) do a close zoom in on the boobs. But eventually, you got some variation on the theme. And I always dug ski school because it was the similar Dirty Dozen, almost Porky's summer school kind of thing. But setting it in a new arena, you know, of like extreme sports and skiing and that sort of thing. And actually doing it very well. You know, i bringing in like real professional skiers and ski photographers and like wow. stuff that they would do on bond movies. It kind of like gave it a sheen, a class, a sheen to it, which I kind of dug.
5: I don't know. I, I think ski school just, just there, there's, there's long stories about ski school and why it is the movie it is. But, you know, I think it was done better with, uh, uh, the John Cusack movie, uh Better so, Off Dead? Yeah, Better Off Dead. Okay. I think that was, a, was like a better ski movie. Okay. And you know, I, I love what you're saying about me. I think that's beautiful and it makes me very happy, but I consider myself sort of a low rent version of Bill Murray and Michael Keaton because there's the there was the eighties really introduced us to the wise guy character mm-hmm. which Tim uh Tim uh what's his face? Did in Animal House? Oh, Tim Matheson, yeah. So that that Tim Matheson guy, <clears throat> he became sort of Bill Murray and Michael Keaton, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I love those guys. So obviously, my you know, when I had the chance to do that, mm-hmm. I di- I did that. I was that was sort of chainsaw was <laughs> right. That that character. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure most things, things are thing.
4: are extremely subjective. And, you know, like for me, sure. obviously, um, the Tim Matheson character in, um, um, Animal House, even to a degree in 1941, you know, where he's trying to get, mm-hmm. uh, the woman in the airplane so that she'll get all sexually aroused. Right. Um, maybe because they were a little older than me, that I got what they were doing, but kind of like with taps, um, maybe because the characters were closer to my age, maybe subconsciously, sure, I, I just course. kind of plugged into yeah, them a little course. more. And I felt that they kind of represented me a little more or maybe what I had hoped to be. Yeah, Yeah.
5: absolutely. Totally makes sense. Of course. Um, Yeah, and and, you know, as far as television goes and family, there are writers who will tell you that every sitcom is just a family and they will... There, are, you know, all these writing books that come, writing books where they will break down these shows that aren't necessarily about family, but they will show you: this is the dad, this is the mom, this is the okay, bad brother, this is that. the good brother, this is the sister. Uh-huh. You know, you can really b- b- just map most television shows. Cheers, to your family. the Mary Tyler Moore Show, yeah, want to see. Allie McBeal, yeah. Because <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah.
5: I, uh, there's a, there's a. Theory about television, and it, it's not so much the same anymore. Now that everything is television, but I try to explain this: uh, television for a time it was the screens were much mm-hmm. smaller, and so when you were a television star, people treated you different differently because you were coming to their house, and you were about three inches <laughs> tall, as opposed to movie stars, where you would go into a darkened room and Robert De Niro was 40 feet tall. And so movie stars had this very different uh, cachet as far as Mm -hmm. how they were treated in public and by the press and everything. And that's why at that time in the 80s, and it changed in the 90s, but in the 80s it was still like there were TV actors and there were movie Very much so. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. You know, Michael Fox sort of broke that, Mm -hmm. but he was one of the few. Everybody, you know, you think, Every television show, like Cheers, Shelley Long left Cheers to do movies and never never hit. Uh, so I, I think that was one of the reasons because people think, no, no, you're my little friend who comes into my house every week. I, I don't go and see you and, and I'm overwhelmed by you. Hmm.
4: Well, maybe kind of the difference between somebody that you would chum and feel comfortable with and someone that you would idolize or admire. Right. Okay. Right.
5: Because, I mean, TV stars, you know, I knew people who were big TV stars, and when they were in public, people come up and touch them, <laughs> you know, and grab them and hug them, and, and you know, they're very familiar. And I, my friends who were movie stars were treated very differently. Wow. And it was an interesting thing. Yeah.
6: Wow. That's fascinating. Well, as, as far as the, the surrogate family angle of the, of, of the 80s, also, there's um, uh, probably the earliest one for me. Or the one that I latched on to was the Breakfast Club. I mean, John Hughes time. in general, but specifically the Breakfast Club was you know that's the movie that kind of showed me that yeah, my friends and I are all we we relate we all relate to this, and wow, we're not the only ones that like you know a lot of kids out there have have some group like this that we ally with more than we would our own family. Hmm. Um, but right. then ab- above and beyond that, I mean, aside from aside from surrogate families, and aside from all the family value stuff, um, I think. It didn't take too long into the eighties, or at least by the you know mid late eighties, uh, when we started seeing the backlash against that, and started seeing uh, the Simpsons mm-hmm, right tearing mm-hmm. it down. Um, or or and, and in the movies, a movie that that I loved at the time, and I remember it being huge at the time, and I'm surprised it isn't better remembered now. But War of the Roses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, God, I love it! Right? Game. Yeah, and and right, right. Which I think when it initially came out, actually had a Simpsons cartoon before it, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty, wow. I'm pretty sure. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They go to a family therapist and Bart eats all the mints off the guy's table <laughs> and then pukes them right back in the bowl. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It, well, let me ask you this, though. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. Don't you think that something like The
4: Simpsons and uh, um, 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 uh, The War, War of the Roses, uh, and even Married with Children mm. and, and shows like that, uh, don't you think that they are just uh, an offshoot or a response to, because The Simpsons are a family. Uh, yeah, absolutely um, a response. I'll go, same thing with Mary with Children yeah, yeah. and even The War of the Roses. You have, you know, the two kids, um, and, and, and of course the parents. And by the end of the movie, the Danny DeVito character, who, you know, who was, you know, the lawyer, he's kind of like, um, for lack of a better term, learned his lesson. Yeah. And he goes home to his wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, don't you think they still, even though they're kind of rebelling against that whole trend, it's almost like in order to rebel against that trend, you kind of have to fall into it, too. You know? Yeah.
5: Embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, like speaking of married with children, the pilot, it was called Not the Cosby's. (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't know that Yeah.
4: (laughs) Cool. I did not know that perfect there you go yeah, yeah, yeah. honorable senator from the state of california the senator j billington bulwark
0: you can't get health insurance body insurance life insurance why haven't you come out for senate bill 2720
7: well because you, you haven't really contributed any money to my campaign have you you got any idea how much these insurance companies come up with may pretty much depend on me to get a bill like that and bottle it up in my committee during an election, and in that way, we can kill it when you're not looking. Let's call a spade a spade. I mean, mean, come on, you can have a billion man march. If you don't put down that malt liquor and chicken wings and get behind somebody other than a running back who stabs his wife, you're never going to get rid of somebody like me.
8: Channel sixty two presents Men on Film.
2: Now we come to Dick Tracy. You know I love the title, but the movie just left me limp. I know what you're saying. This is this is what I don't get. All the characters fit their names. You know, Flat Top had a flat top. Prune Face looked just like a little prune but I never got the chance to see <laughs>
3: It's hot in here.
4: The arts are forever cyclical in that the fringe inevitably becomes the mainstream. In the 1970s, inner-city artists and playwrights such as Jean-Michel Basquiat and Miguel Pinheiro rocked and raged against what they considered to be the staid and stale status quo state of the era's creative arts scene. But by the 1980s, painter Basquiat had become a part of Andy Warhol's inner circle and was dating Madonna, and playwright Pinheiro... A former Rikers Island inmate and member of New York's Young Lord Street Gang had logged appearances in TV series such as Miami Vice and films like Fort Apache the Bronx and Deal of the Century. Originally born in the South Bronx of the 1970s, by the 1980s, hip-hop had become the most popular musical form in the world. And by the 90s, the formerly fringe urban culture had become contemporary high-runway haute couture, impacting TV series with The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, starring rapper DJ Will Smith becoming a Middle America ratings hit, and film with Warren Beatty's 1998 political satire Bullworth telling its story from the club scene of southeast Washington, D.C. The same would happen within the formerly fringe-worthy world of stand-up comedy, wherein cutting-edge and at times blue comedians such as Roseanne Barr, Jerry Seinfeld, and Arsenio Hall became stars of the most popular TV series of the decade.
7: How you living? What? How you living? What? How you living? In living color.
4: Perhaps the most quintessential example of the 1990s fringe to mainstream phenomenon, TVs in living color, was a combination of both the formerly fringe hip-hop and comedy worlds. Created by actor-comedian brothers Keenan and Damon Wayans, its fresh take on the by-then, by-the-numbers SNL-like comedy variety show was that the humor was born not in L.A. writing offices or in the hallowed halls of 30 Rockefeller Plaza. 30 Rock for short, but rather from the hip-hop world. Instead of the traditional Tonight Show-like band leader, in Living Color featured a DJ spinning rap mixes accompanied by a sexy dance troupe known as the Fly Girls one of whose members was an up-and-coming entertainer named Jennifer Lopez and whose choreographer was actress-dancer Rosie Perez. Also, with the exception of breakout comedian-actor Jim Carrey, most of the show's ensemble cast were African-American. A ratings smash during its first two seasons in Living Color, along with Married with Children and The Simpsons, helped turn then-fledgling fourth network Fox TV into a genuine multimedia giant. And perhaps inevitably, as such, during its final three seasons, it would become the victim of its own success, plummeting in the ratings while caught in a network versus creators tug of war over censorship, creative control, and revenue
5: rights. The 90s for me are sort of a wash. Um, I think i mentioned this to you. When I moved to Los Angeles in 1980, I had everything I owned in the back of my car and it it got stolen, which oh, included shit. a small TV set that I had. So I didn't have a TV and forever. Mm-hmm. And I had had girlfriends and a girlfriend, and she had a TV, so I was able to keep up with the Saturday Night Live and some TV shows during the 80s. But uh-huh. by the time the 90s rolled around, I was living by myself. Uh, I had, like, my career was tanking, so I didn't have a lot of money and so I didn't have a TV, so I also didn't go see many movies either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the '90s for me are sort of this wasteland. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I know about ER because I was on it. So I watched a <laughs> episodes of that, uh, but but really, uh, yeah, it's sort of I got nothing. But I'll I'll pipe in. I when think I we can. can say that
6: <laughs> that decade we can largely say it was a wash in general, because there's I mean. Even as it was happening, um, one of the William Goldman books, and I think it was—I uh, don't think it was the big picture. I think it was which light I, I tell. Yeah, cool. Uh-huh. He makes a pretty strong case in about 96 or 97 for the 90s being the worst decade in Hollywood history mm-hmm. ever. And he didn't, and he and he keeps qualifying it. He, in the one paragraph, he'll say three or four times, now pay attention to what I said. I'm not saying all movies suck right now. I'm saying Hollywood movies mm-hmm. suck right now. There's great stuff happening in Europe. There's great stuff happening in in Brooklyn. There's great stuff happening in in, like, you know being filmed out in the desert in new mexico mm-hmm. or something but right as far as hollywood as far as the machine the machine is broken right now and we're seeing some really pedestrian stuff which kind of goes to your point about the you know the the fringe becoming the mainstream it took it took a while from the beginning but uh well you know i think i think we'd say it took longer for the movies to catch up but but as you're mentioning earlier Better than living color uh uh coming out right at the beginning of the 90s i mean why do you think that was why do you think that You know, uh, the 90s in general were were, were, Mm -hmm. were kind of
4: a washout. I know why. Yeah, please. Jump jump on in there.
5: I I think that, you know, in the 80s, this thing happened in Hollywood, which which was called packaging. Oh, God. And the the studios started, the agencies in the studios started working together and packaging these movies with stars and directors and writers all together. And so the movie and then the. The bean counters got involved, and the giant corporations got involved. And, and I'm all for giant corporations. I love them, but they're not good at making movies. And that all happened. And it was sort of okay in the 80s. I mean, you could start to start <laughs> see it going to hell by the end of the 80s, witness ski school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But by the time they really got into power in the 90s, it just became this machine, and everything was the same, and it was all horrible in Hollywood and it, it broke and it's you know now they're running scared and who knows what's going on but it's uh yeah that's it was it died
4: mm-hmm. well you know it, it's kind of funny you mention that because I don't necessarily think it was just Hollywood I mean at the time I was um working at Tower Records <laughs> you know in the uh i guess mid to late eighties and nineties, and i always thought it was kind of fascinating to see how similar the music and film industries were and around that same time in the nineties, you had that whole fringe becoming the mainstream thing too. You had a lot of independent record labels like nonesuch and g r p and all these you know either jazz or world music or whatever, and they were all just being absorbed by the major you know, by, you know, RCA and, and 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 MCA and all these, you know, and they were packaging them uh, kind of like Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park. Before you realize what you had, you slap the label on it and bang, you're selling it, you know. And that happened in the music industry. And then the same thing happened in the film industry where a lot of the rebels who had risen up in the 80s, a lot of the independent cinema became mainstream. I mean, the Sundance Film Festival, as wonderful as it is, became a cinematic institution. Um, You know, and then you had the founding of stuff like the Independent Film Channel and American Movie Classics and Turner Classic Movies, and those are all wonderful, and I love those, but in some respects, as soon as you slap a label on something, it's kind of... its run of rebellious innovation has ended. You know, as soon as you refer to a certain genre as steampunk... It's ended because because it, it now has a label that you can sell and merchandise, you know. Um, I'm sorry, yes?
5: Yeah, I used to joke in the 90s that heavy metal was actually alternative music. Yeah, and, and, it, and it is, and it was. Because no one was listening to it then, except for a small niche group of people, but right. you know, everyone was listening to Nirvana or or whoever.
4: But don't you think that, um, like, as soon as now, I one of my favorite documentaries of all time is uh, um, The Decline of Western Civilization. You know oh, uh, it's an awesome yeah. movie um the decline of western civilization part two doesn't move me as much is a eh, you know i don't know how you guys feel about the second film but it's almost like the second film to me almost feels like a necessary corporate follow-up to the first film um mm,
5: i don't know i think it, i think it captured yeah you think okay so was sort of part of that scene i think it captured it pretty well okay
4: all right all right yeah. okay
5: cool um Okay. But it did, but it was different. I mean cuz metal wasn't about the politics like punk was. So it definitely okay. had a different slant. Metal was about getting laid yeah. and drinking and fucking, yeah. Which right. I guess right, getting right. laid is fucking, huh. But uh,
4: <laughs> yeah. I think in general just um I think corporate not just corporate America, but, you know, you had Sony and, and, and a lot of tech companies from from Europe and Germany and what have you. Um, and at the same time, uh, digital hardware was now all the rage. You know, so you had all of these uh, recording companies like JVC, you know, and and, and and who were getting into the entertainment business. And they were co-financing movies um, a- a- as well as music. So there was this blurring. Uh, Where yeah, the independent movement was becoming part of the um, mainstream, and for me, the TV series *A Living Color* was the best of was the best and the worst of that era. Uh, the best in that, there were people like Jim Carrey, you, you know, who came up in you know in in, uh, in that era, and then even uh, everybody forgets uh, the Fly Girls, mm-hmm. you know, the dancers, Jennifer Lopez, uh, yeah, J- Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez. You know Paula Abdul and people like that, famous choreographers and what have you. They were from the fringe, and they all became mainstream. I remember first seeing Jim Carrey film-wise in Clint Eastwood's Pink Cadillac. Yeah, uh, you know the scene where he's in Reno. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> right, and there's um, he's just having a conversation with Burnett Peters. They're in a casino, and in the background, Jim Carrey is a comedian performing his quintessential uh, act, uh, Nuclear Elvis. You know, <laughs> and um, when I first saw that, I was like, who the hell is that guy? He's hilarious and he's sick and he's twisted all at the same time. And it wasn't until later that I had seen a few episodes of A Living Color and it was, like, you know, um, the white guy on A Living Color, you know, that everybody was cracking up about. And I was like, Oh, my God, that's the same guy from Pink Cadillac. And uh, so, yeah, it was kind of neat how uh, a, a handful of shows like uh, The Simpsons and Married with Children and A Living Color put the upstart Fox network on the map. And then in time, Fox became, for lack of a better term, the man, (laughs) you know, the corporate entity. Um, And even with A Living Color, as the seasons went on, there were a lot of contract disputes and uh, controversy between Fox and Keenan Ivory Wayans over who owned the property. And it kind of dissolved under... A cloud of corporate, I don't know, uh, BS, you know, uh, and so so the show kind of ended that way. So in some respects, for me, that perfectly represented that era, the 90s, because it was the best of times, the worst of times, as Charles Dickens would say.
6: In Living Color was also the first of three 90s shows that kind of challenged Saturday Night Live to get their ass back in gear because they were really losing their stride in the 90s. But first uh, In Living Color, then Mad TV. And probably to a lesser probably to a lesser degree, um, but a show that I personally love was uh, House of Buggin, the John Leguizamo show, uh, which is kind of like a Latino in Living Color, right? I mean, it was we, we have our one and white guy too, and and but still, I mean, basically, and 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 um, to jump off of, of regular series TV and 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 films for a bit, but to me, just John Leguizamo in the '90s, um, to me was almost as important as as Richard, not as important as Richard Pryor in the '70s, but you know, what, as important as Eddie Murphy in the eighties stand up, I, mean, I would make that. I would make that argument because Leguizamo's HBO specials, uh, um, like not just doing one character in a Latino experience, doing his entire family and all their friends and everybody on their block. Right? I mean, the guy could do anything and everything, and he just kept doing it. And when you have a character, when you have an actor with that much fire in his belly to write it and perform it, and then All Star Live has is you know. Uh, Sorry, David Spade. I mean, he's likable, but he's a one-joke guy. He's the Tasmanian devil, you know? It's like you see him him smirk, and that's about what you're going to get out of him. Yeah, pretty much.
5: I'm going to tell a Dean Cameron Hollywood showbiz story about John Leguizamo. Yeah, please. Go ahead. I loved the Mario Brothers game. Um, I loved Mario Brothers, and... So when they announced they were making the Mario Brothers movie, I was still sort of in the game. So I was on my agent like, I want to. Can you get me in on Mario Brothers movie? I want to play. I want to play Luigi. I want to play Luigi. Can you please get me in a Mario? Like, no, we can't. We're trying, we're trying, and finally they, had, they made an offer to John Leguizamo. It's like, and I didn't know who because I didn't have a TV. I go, I, and I was at this this girl's house, and HBO is playing in the background, and I go, John who? John Lego what? And she goes, John Leguizamo, he's a, he's a very famous comedian. I go, I don't know who John Leguizamo on. And I'm looking at the TV and the ad for some John Leguizamo HBO special comes on. And I just go, all right, I'm going to go. Bye. <laughs> 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 when we
4: return, we wind things down with another tune by and a mini interview with our musical guest, Lucian Nagy. And we finish things up with a look at the contemporary Judd Apatow comedy machine. Stay with us, here on The Movie Sneak.
1: Hey Andy,
4: don't let them
0: bother you. It's okay not to have sex. Life isn't about sex. Life is about children and passion. Yeah, it's about passion. It's about cock and ass and tits mm-hmm. and butthole pleasures. It's not about butthole pleasures at all. It's not about this rusty trombone and dirty Sanchez. It's about the rainbow showers and the camel toe slide and the Cincinnati bow tie, the Arabian goggles call, and the hot car and pearl necklace or pussy juice cocktails and the, the jagged head dildos and the double decker...
4: sneak welcome to our first musical guest lucian nage lucian how are you man
10: i'm fine
4: a great pleasure to finally make your acquaintance coming up momentarily we have cullendom cullendom your rendition of a traditional romanian christmas carol and the vocalist on the piece a fantastic vocalist is uh, maria Ciorin, who also fronts for the Bega blues band can you tell us a little something about both maria and Bega blues
10: Oh, yeah, it's my fiancé's band nice. in which I'm from time to time invited uh, with Steve Brookfield, the producer that is working for my Balcomba tribe also. Mm-hmm. And we actually produced the last album of Bega Blues Band. And uh, I was invited also to record on a few tracks for the album. And we had this festival, a gala jazz blues here in Timisoara in the western part of Romania. And uh, we released, actually, the new album called Brassica Soup. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's uh, kind of a crazy name, but uh, actually it's a mixture between my... The composition named Soup a la Blues and uh, Brassica o It's a composition of the bass player.
4: Sweet. Now, uh, I've been a jazz fan since childhood. Uh, My father used to play guitar when I was a young child and I'd listened to so many different types of music. Um, I worked at a jazz club uh, uh, in Philadelphia for a number of years and had a wonderful opportunity to meet various jazz artists, uh, Dave Benoit, uh, John Petitucci, uh, um, um, Dino, Die uh, ensure so many. It was a fantastic experience. And I'm curious as to how, who were some of your early influences in jazz? Who turned you on to the art form?
10: Um, yeah, when I started, actually, I, I was starting with, as I said, with a classical training, let's say. Mm-hmm. But in my family, because my parents, they are coming from, a, let's say, a ground of, My father also was playing jazz in the past, in the 80s. And uh, he started actually to give me recordings with Charlie Parker, John Coltrane. And he said, Mm -hmm. if you want to play bebop, you should listen to this. And so I started. But actually, when I specialized, let's say, in the jazz, I I went to New York and I studied with Bob Franceschini from Mike Stern Band. Ah. Yeah, so he's actually my main uh, mentor or guru in matter of jazz and saxophone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, also, I was with Dave Liebman a few hours. Uh, but with Bob Franceschini, I took like master, proper master classes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. he was the one who turned the key. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> it was
10: with the jazz thing. In rest, I just. Uh, I studied with uh, musicians like Paul de Castro from Orquesta Dengue from LA but I, uh, it was much more with the direct direction of Afro Latin Brazilian music so not proper jazz so and uh, also the harmony and the concepts in jazz i was studying with uh, another great friend also because I played a lot with him it's from New York he's a vibraphone player but he's also composing I mean I think he graduated now he has the doctor degree in composing so
4: well uh, Lucian thank you very much for uh, joining us here at the movie sneak Uh, it's been my honor and uh, I would love to have you uh, return again sometime if you uh, if you'd be willing
10: with pleasure. Thank you so much for, uh, I don't know, discovering me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, just more like uh, stumbling across you one uh, early in the thank early morning. Thank you
10: so much. <laughs> and hopefully we will talk very soon. I don't know when you will
4: Oh, talk. absolutely. Awesome. Okay, man. All right, man. I will talk to you again soon. The Movie Sneak is once again proud to present Lucian Nagy with vocalist Maria Ciorin and their rendition of the Romanian Christmas Carol, Colendam... Thank much more of Lucian's musical magic on his official SoundCloud and YouTube channels. The links to both available on our official Movie Sneak Facebook page. To greet a guest who as producer or writer or director and sometimes all three at once has virtually cornered the market on contemporary comedy with works like the Ben Stiller Show, the Larry Sanders Show, The Cable Guy... Freaks
6: and Geeks, Undeclared, Anchorman, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Talladega Nights, Knocked Up, Superbad,
7: Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Pineapple Express, Year One, and Funny People. Last year, when Time Magazine saluted the
8: 100 most influential people in the world, his picture was on the cover. The Actors Studio is very proud to welcome
4: Judd Apatow. All right, even though Judd Apatow wasn't involved in it, you could arguably say that the modern Judd Apatow generation began with 1999's American Pie. I mean, it was this small $11 million film, which itself with its blatantly honest and visceral and at times gross-out generation-wide, this-is-us kind of humor became the new Fringe, uh, a response to what the 90s had become. So this little movie goes on to make over 230 million around the world. Uh, It spawns a slew of sequels and spinoffs, and itself becomes the new mainstream. Therefore, people wanted more of that Fringe Slash mainstream hit and Judd Apatow, who had been producing and co-writing films like Talladega Nights and a few others um, was there. And then he had TV shows like, you know, Freaks and Geeks and what have you. And a lot of the people who were involved in the new Saturday Night Live movement, a lot of actors and performers were involved in his stock company, if you will. And they would later show up in films like the 40 year old version and train wreck and what have you, uh, and TV series like Girls and blah blah blah. So, anyway, that's all great, that's all wonderful. I love that. Um, the opposite end is the part I don't love where I kind of feel like sometimes he tries a little too hard. I love, love Judd Apatow's movies, but Jesus Christ, every single one of them, They and I'm not, I'm no prude. But they dropped the F-bomb more than the French Connection and Black Rain put together. (laughs) And I just don't necessarily know that that's necessary. I mean, I have no problems with sex in movies, but if it's just all sex to the detriment of story and character and plot, it kind of gets distracting and irritating to me, what some writers kind of call sex position in shows like Game of Thrones and what have you. I'm sorry, Dean, you were about to...
5: I I I just I think you have to remember that they're not making movies for us and yeah and and you're 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 treading into the get off my lawn area of of what you're talking about because I, I I love I love the Judd Apatow stuff and I am aware that it's not for me but what I love is his fucking women are strong and awesome and I don't know what Catherine Heigl was talking about but I think his women are fucking great and the women are the sane ones in the movies and they're the ones doing the funny stuff mm-hmm. and and the guys are acting like idiots and I, I but yeah, all the yeah. f bombs and the sex stuff is like. Uh, you know what? And I think that's also the same as Saturday Night Live. It's not for us. Our, we're not hanging out with our buddies, drinking and trying to get laid and have Saturday yeah, Night yeah. Live on on Saturday night. We're doing other stuff. But you know, back when we were in our 20s or our teens, that's what we were watching. And that's what those people are watching now mm-hmm. who, if they're not watching mm-hmm. YouTube or playing video games or fucking.
4: Now, it's funny. I agree. 98% of what you just said. The 2% that I slightly disagree with, when you mention that uh, how, yeah, definitely all the women are, you know, like definitely wonderful female characters. And I grew up in a family of strong women. I right. have you know, mostly aunts and cousins are all women. They grew up in the South and blah, blah. So, yeah. Now, what I like about the Judd what I love about the Judd Apatow films, what they do that a lot of romantic comedies have never done is that I kind of disagree that the women are strong and all the guys are for lack of a better term, empty-headed. Yeah. I like the fact that in the in, in his films, he calls a lot of the women on their bullshit too.
5: Yes, yeah,
4: you know that I really dig. I think a lot of people have a tendency to tr- well treat women in general as either Madonna's or whores. You know, and
5: Th- that's what I mean about his women are they're not the '80s women in, in '80s movies who were all either b- bitches or saints. You know, his women are are humans, and they're strong, like women are. And the ones who aren't are weak and weird and fucked up. But they're humans, and they're interesting characters. I, I used to have this rap about not rap, rap, but I used to talk about how the reason actresses have such a hard time is because their da- – you know, it, writers write these women, and writers were had horrible times in high school with women and so they write these crazy women characters which actresses then have to make real and so actresses then think wait is this what a woman is and that's why they're so fucked up i think it's less so than it used to be but and i'm making sweeping generalizations which is what i do everybody makes generalizations
4: yeah yeah <coughs> and um kind of hard to put my finger on that slight negative about the whole apatow
6: genre but
4: it's somewhere in there you know
6: i'll i'll, I'll put a finger on it here, here here's my problem with and i first noticed it with funny people and he's done it ever since Has been, it was just a bigger problem with this is 40 um some of these things are just too damn long i'm fine seeing a, a an unfunny or a, a, a movie that doesn't have to be funny every minute of it and especially about comedians uh, i like punchline with tom hanks and uh sally field right Not a great movie, but it did its job. And funny people almost seem to be trying to one-up that, and and I just didn't think it did it very successfully. And uh, This Is 40, um, again, these things are both over 130 minutes with people that I would be taxed to spend 95 minutes around. And uh, um, the the only thing I liked about This Is 40 was, was, um, uh, oh my God, how am I drawing a blank on her name? She's only in for a couple of scenes. Um Jeez. Megan McCarthy. Megan McCarthy. The Megan McCarthy bit one in the movie is the best well, meme, But then in the credits, the end credits, all the the bloopers give me a movie that good. Give me a movie as good as give me a movie about her instead of these two annoying characters. And um and the other thing that actually bugged me about this is forty. Uh, uh, a few days before, I was I was kind of interested in seeing it. It, was, it wasn't top of my list, but the thing that put it on the top of my list was I heard Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann on NPR. On I want to say it was on, um, uh, just like on Fresh Air or one of those one of the regular shows, uh, uh, and they had the whole hour. And they were hilarious and they were poignant and they were sad and they were honest and they were funny and that one hour had so much more to and you know, takeaway breaks and stuff. And they probably spoke for a good forty-five minutes. And that forty-five minutes was so much funnier and more insightful than than any of his movies in the past ten years. And um, and I think I think I would be down on 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 particularly on those two movies and on the recent ones in general. Um, I mean, they, they would just kind of not really strongly resonate with me, but having heard that one hour they did on NPR and hearing how funny they really can be and how interesting they really can be. It just, to me, it's, just, it's almost like blown potential that I've seen what you can do, man. You know, it's in there. Just do it and, and get rid of, cut 20 minutes out of all of these things, tighten it all up and you'll have a much better movie. You know, and, and um, so it's just to me, it feels like the good stuff is there. There's just so much fat on it that it's hard to paw through it all to get to it.
4: Uh, well, for me, anyway, I do dig Judd Apatow. Uh, in some respects, maybe he's the modern day plumb line or the great equalizer of what I dug about the 70s taboo breaking the 80s surrogate families and the 90s fringe. But coupled with uh, hey, it is what it is need to appeal to a wide commercial audience. And Apatow's got a global audience, kind of proving that his films and TV shows have tapped into not just the contemporary American zeitgeist, but a modern-day human one. Essentially, the boundaries have been broken. We can do things that are a little more explicit, a little more visceral, if you will, and a little more blue. Um, But let's take that and infuse it with interesting characters and interesting scenarios that people can tap into and relate to. So, yeah, that I dig. You know, I I love that. I think he is a master at that. So I don't want this to come off as, you know, the let's beat up on Judd Apatow hour, you know, (laughs) because I um, you know, I mean, hey, I love the Bond films. I love the Star Wars films. I love the Star Trek films. But if you want to get into the things I don't like about them, we could go on all night long, you know. So same thing with the Judd Apatow films. I think they're positives and, and TV series. I think their positives far outweigh their negatives, and maybe because those positives I love so much, when those negatives pop up, it's like, ah, God damn it. You know, (laughs) they just irk me that much more. If they were lame-ass executions, I would just say, oh, well, these things are lame, so I take it all as lame. But when they have so much good in them, and you have those things, maybe they run a little too long, maybe they're a little too self-aware, it's like, oh man, this could have been a ten, and then ended up being a six and a half. But, if you consider that many films are simply a four or a five, six and a half isn't bad. But, you know, when you set the bar higher for yourself, you, you know. We're, we're, you
5: basically just said, at least I don't have AIDS.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. Okay. okay. I wish you would
5: have said that earlier. I'll take her. Herpes, you would have saved a herpes. lot of weed oh, on my part.
6: <laughs> I'll
5: take some herpes. Sure.
6: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. But anyway, so there you go.
4: Well, that'll about do it for this episode of the Movie Sneak, which has probably run on a little longer than we anticipated, but that's all right. We we had a we had a damn good time. So, uh, Dean, do you want to uh, finish out with any uh, summations, um, final thoughts uh, on this bad boy here?
5: I mean, comedy comedy right now. I I've been uh, one of my goals. The next, I, whenever I can, is to start writing on television. And my in, I think the easiest way in for me would be comedy. So I've been watching a lot of comedy TV, and it's just the same people, and it's so it's weird, um, and it like it's. Jenny Slade And Chelsea Peretti And Nick Kroll And John Daly And Ron Funches And uh, Anybody from Saturday Night Live Bill Hader It's all those people It's the same fucking people And I guess that's always been true But it seems really right now Like It's crazy With you, You watch any Any funny show And those people are gonna pop up It's really weird Really weird yeah, and Brooklyn. I mean, you watch Brooklyn Nine Nine or the Kroll Show or uh, Amy Schumer Show. Uh, there, it's the same. It's the same people. I mean, it's one of the things, and it's and it's going st- to. One of my favorite shows is uh, uh, I can't remember Workaholics, and that's going to start happen. It's starting to happen on Workaholics because those guys are now working with Apatow to to, to do a movie. So I noticed the last season some of those. People started showing up on Workaholics Um, And sort of, I I say Infecting it in Whatever way, not necessarily a bad way But comedy is weird like that You get the same people, and I totally understand Working with, you want to work with the same people And studios don't want to take a chance But it really, it seems everything's Being written by the same people You know, all the Parks and Rec people That's a, it's weird You know what I mean? anyway that sort of wraps it up for me for for the comedy portion of it.
6: Thanks, big time. Take care, Dean. Well, that'll about do it for this installment of the Movie Sneak. Thanks to our guests, Dean Cameron, Lu Shin Nagi, and We Found Microphones. And a Laurel and hearty handshake to Bob Cho and Sean Carr of Art19. <laughs> Tune in
4: next week as we've got It sounds like Batman <laughs> Tune in next week as we've got an awesome sit-down With novelist Alan Dean Foster Best known for film novelizations Such as The Thing, Alien, Starman Outland, The Last Starfighter Pale Rider, The Black Hole The original Star Wars Actually ghostwritten as George Lucas And the soon-to-be-released The Force Awakens He's also the pen behind Such popular literary series As the Spellsinger and Ice rigger novels As well as the original script track. In
6: Thy Image, which became Star Trek The Motion Picture. We delve into Trek The Motion Picture, which is still a bit of a delicate area with Alan, and the constant cinema versus book battle of bad science versus great visual drama, and his career-long association with the Star Wars and Star Trek universes, and the deliberate vagueness of Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider, and more. It's going to be great. Awesome. Until then, I'm Craig
4: Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of thelunchmovie.com. And thanks for joining us at The Movie Sneak. We'll see you next time up there in those cheap seats.